Hattie West, and this is Policy Talks. Welcome to Policy Talks, a show of policy analysis and international affairs. In this episode, I sit with Dr. Zachary Pekin to discuss the recent challenges facing Europe and the impact of the Russia-Ukraine conflict on the European Union. We also explore current and future developments in Europe related to geopolitics, security, defense, foreign policy, international order, and more. Dr. Zachary Pekin is a non-resident research fellow at the Institute for Peace and Diplomacy based in Geneva, Switzerland. He is also a researcher in European Union foreign policy at the Center for European Policy Studies in Brussels, as well as a senior visiting fellow at the Global Policy Institute in London, UK. At the Institute for Peace and Diplomacy, Dr. Pekin oversaw the Institute's 2021 federal election coverage and also serves as director of its China Strategy Project, which dwells on five key policy questions shaping the future of Canada-China relations. Dr. Pekin, who also holds a PhD in international relations from the University of Kent, is also a member of the executive committee of the Younger Generation Leaders Network on Euro-Atlantic Security as well as a collaborator with the New York for Strategic Analysis, funded by Canada's Department of National Defense. His fields of expertise include the European Union foreign policy, Canadian foreign policy, international order, and great powers relations. He is a contributing author to Marginaliser, Réflexion sur l'isolement du Canada dans les relations internationales, published by Presse de l'Université Laval in 2022, and a co-editor of Rebooting Global International Security, Change, Contestation and Resilience, published by the Paul Grave Macmillan series in 2022. Welcome to the show, Dr. Pekin. Good to have you here. Thanks for having me, Hadi. My pleasure. A brief reminder to our followers and listeners that all opinions discussed today are reflective of the individual person expressing them and do not reflect the views of the interviewer, iAffairs Canada, the Canadian Foreign Policy Journal, the Norman Patterson School of International Affairs, or Carleton University. Great to have you again uh, with us, Dr. Pekin. I will get uh, you know, immediately into the discussion. Um, and I will ask you about, you know, the most recent situation that the world has been witnessing for the past few months. Um, many claim that the current situation between Russia and Ukraine has rendered every possible avenue for Ukraine to be part of NATO or the European Union um, unattainable, even for the far future. What are your thoughts on this? Well, I don't see Ukrainian membership in NATO being on the table anytime soon, uh, nor was it on the table anytime soon before this war. So I don't know if this war has necessarily changed anything. Uh, Ukraine's territorial integrity had already been compromised by Russia going back to 2014. Uh, so bringing Ukraine into NATO would obviously uh, pose a significant security risk for existing NATO members, which would explain why you know we haven't really seen what's one reason of many why we haven't seen uh, the yardsticks on that front uh, move forward. But in terms of Ukraine's uh, EU aspirations, we've seen them take uh, a major step forward in, in recent months uh, compared to what was expected uh, you know before the war. 
Um, the Eastern Partnership uh, of the European Neighborhood Policy, which is uh, something that the, that the EU uh, engages in with its uh, Eastern neighbors, its uh, six Eastern Partnership uh, uh, countries, uh, you know, which are uh, until recently, until 2020, Belarus, um, but uh, also Ukraine, Moldova, Georgia, uh, Armenia, and Azerbaijan, uh, was not predicated, uh, unlike for the Western Balkans, was not predicated uh, on offering these countries EU membership someday. It was predicated on uh, hoping that these countries would, uh, you know, gradually align themselves with EU norms and standards, uh, you know, and, and pursue certain economic and political reforms in exchange for money in exchange for you know greater uh, migration uh, uh, privileges to the European Union uh, uh, you know etc uh, but it was not necessarily going to culminate in membership but what we have seen uh, you know remarkably uh, is uh, last month uh, you know in, in in late June we saw the European Commission and the European Council endorse uh, Ukraine and Moldova's applications to be recognized formally as candidate countries to join the European Union and I think that that's a very significant uh, development. Uh, and it's probably something that would not necessarily have, have happened had the invasion not taken place and this clear moral and political imperative, uh, you know, uh, appeared before, you know, European leaders. So, you know, I think that's, uh, uh, you know, it's a, it's a big development that raises important questions for European leaders about what their project is all about, what the EU is all about, uh, you know, what future form the European Union has to take. Um, and it's a big deal for, for Ukraine uh, as well, because at the end of the day, irrespective of where the line of contact is when this war ends, uh, you know, irrespective of whether it's a few kilometers that way or a few kilometers uh, the other way, uh, the important thing for Ukraine that will determine Ukrainian victory in this war is not territory, but whether Ukraine can emerge as a sovereign, uh, independent state with a European and Western-oriented future. And the European Union is the organization that can offer that, much more than NATO, right? Much more than external security guarantees, actually reforming your economy, reforming your political system, you know, joining the West as a civilizational construct. That's the much more important thing for Ukraine. And just like we saw Finland achieve after World War II, when it had to cede Eastern Karelia, for example, to the Soviet Union, uh, but nonetheless, Finland emerged as, as a sovereign country, an independent country, uh, you know, Western in every you know significant respect, and eventually in the 1990s, able to join NATO. Uh, excuse me, able to join the European Union, and now, uh, you know, joining NATO. Uh, you know, I, I think that a similar thing is what we should be looking forward to uh, for Ukraine. It will take time. Uh, a decade or possibly more. Uh, but nonetheless, I, I would not pour cold water on, on that as of right now. It's far too early to tell. And, and obviously, it depends to a significant extent on the decisions that European leaders themselves take, uh, you know, on whether or not to, to clear the, the road forward for Ukraine, because, you know, the Western Balkans enlargement situation has, has been plagued with some significant difficulty recently, uh, with a whole bunch of, of candidate countries there uh, basically stagnating on their, on their road towards EU membership, whether it's Serbia or most notably North Macedonia, as we've seen most recently. And analyzing the situation from a global order perspective, how can the United Nations, in your opinion, claim to be an international organization that governs a rules-based multilateral system at a time when Russia is invading Ukraine while being a member of the P5? How should the organization reconcile with, with that? Well, you know, th this is not the first time that uh, a veto-wielding P5 member has been able to shield itself from um, not, I wouldn't say international condemnation, but nonetheless, you know, consequences for its actions by virtue of the powers that the UN system gives it. I mean, we've seen, you know, Russia or the Soviet Union do this before in Hungary in 1956 and in Czechoslovakia in 1968. 
so, uh, you know, I, I, I don't think that, you know, for those people who say that, that the UN has been, uh, you know, presiding over a rules-based international order since 1945, uh, you know, um, I don't see how all of a sudden things have changed right now. This is not the first crisis of this sort that the UN has had to confront. Uh, the UN does, uh, in, in some respects, uh, facilitate rules-based multilateralism and, and cooperation uh, between states, small states, medium-sized states, and great powers as well. Not all the time, but sometimes, and it's an important uh, feature of the international institutional architecture. Uh, and, you know, renowned for its uh, its unparalleled legitimacy, irrespective of the fact uh, you know, that, that it has many failings, of course, but it's because, you know, it is an important form in which all countries or nearly all countries participate, that it's able to wield that, that degree of legitimacy. Uh, so, you know, the, the very famous saying of, of, uh, of, of the former Secretary General, uh, Doug Hammarskjöld of, of, uh, of the United Nations, you know, saying that the UN was created not to bring the world to heaven, but rather to save it from falling into hell, uh, is, you know, very much apt. Uh, you know, you shouldn't make, uh, you know, the perfect the enemy of the good. Uh, and rules-based multilateralism ultimately does not suggest that there's going to be no problem whatsoever in managing interstate relations. It simply uh, you know, tries to find ways uh, to, to get states to, to cooperate and resolve their differences peacefully. The problem is when the rules and the interpretation of the rules becomes too rigid for there actually to be significant uh, agreement between member states on major issues. And that's what we've seen in relations between Russia and the West over recent years and recent decades is that there have been you know, fundamentally different interpretations of what the rules actually are. And that has less to do with the UN, uh, and it has more to do with different interpretations of the rules and what we believe those rules to be. Much like uh, you know, the values that we have today, we always like to say that values X, Y, and Z in the West are inherited from Magna Carta in 1215, even though Magna Carta doesn't necessarily contain explicitly those values X, Y, and Z. It, it contains, in our view, what we believe it to contain, and we project our own views onto this document rather than reading the document itself. So it's a similar, uh, similar dynamic going on today. Uh, in which Western countries believe that the right to sovereignty and national self-determination extends all the way to the right to choose what military alliances you want to join. And therefore, Ukraine's membership in, in NATO or the European Union is exclusively up to Ukraine and NATO and the European Union to determine. And there should be no third party holding a veto over that. But Russia obviously has a very different interpretation of what constitutes national self-determination and how far that right actually extends. And most ordinary Russians, you know, probably uh, understand you know, why Ukraine wants to be an independent country. And they don't challenge that, even though they don't necessarily like the idea. They do stress the, the fraternal bonds between the two countries. But m most Russians probably just cannot get it through their heads why, you know, uh, Ukraine appears hell-bent on joining the West and, and appears anti-Russia to them. Uh, you know, that's something that's much more difficult for, for them to understand. And so this isn't just a, a Russian government, uh, you know, p position uh, that's been driving sort of different understandings of, of these norms and, and rules between Russia and the West, but it's something that's very much rooted in, in the Russian public and its understanding of, of Russian history, the Russian people, Russian culture, the boundaries of the Russian, the Russian uh, nation, as it were, uh, and, and much bigger questions uh, like this. Dr. Pekin, we know that energy has been a major concern in this situation, and we are aware as well that 
Gazprom, PJSC, recently cut natural gas supplies via its most important link to the European Union to about 20% of the pipeline's capacity. Is there a real risk, in your opinion, that European Union unity may be fractured uh, this winter if strained budgets and supply issues limit the bloc's capacity to cope with the sudden energy shortages? I mean, we're, we're seeing uh, an attempt by the European Union to prepare itself for the winter right now. Uh, but the fact is that we've already seen divisions begin to emerge. So both of these factors are, are playing out at the same time. On the one hand, you have these inevitable fissures that have absolutely come out, that have been played out publicly, uh, you know, in, in EU Council meetings over uh, you know subsequent uh, rounds of sanctions. Um, and at the same time, there's also this resolve, this desire on the part of, of, of many uh, EU member states to try to keep the momentum uh, for, for unity going. Uh, and compromises can be hashed out, even if they're watered down compromises. So I think that that facade of unity is still going to be there. And, and it will be more than a facade, I suppose. You know, there will be elements of, uh, you know, of, of, of substance in there. Um, but, but at the end of the day, there's, there's going to be a problem if that, if that unity does turn out to be more formal than substantial, and if that unity is derived exclusively in the context of adopting an anti-Russia policy. Um, because being united against something is one thing, but that's not the same thing as being united for uh, a common vision of what your place is in the evolving international order. And if there's one thing that's happening right now as a result of Russia's invasion of Ukraine, it's a shift uh, in the international order. And the EU needs to be prepared uh, to act as, as a decisive collective actor. Uh, in, in whatever that order is going to end up looking like. And that's something that's going to be very difficult if you end up with, with a foreign policy of the European Union uh, that's going to be uh, you know, rooted in the lowest common denominator as it has been vis-a-vis -vis Russia uh, you know, for, uh, for some time now. Uh, and, and that's something that's going to have to be overcome. And, and it's very difficult to see uh, how you overcome that dynamic as so long as EU foreign and security policy requires uh, the unanimity rule. Uh, right. If any country can use its veto to block common statements or the adoption of a common foreign and security policy, well, then there's no incentive that any country has to negotiate. And I'm not saying that you know qualified majority voting is going to solve all problems. It, it certainly won't. Uh, but in any event, it, it's quite unlikely to come about now because France and Germany have been behaving throughout this conflict in a way that makes it pretty clear that uh, you know their priorities are not necessarily the same as those of Central and Eastern European countries. And, and that's a dynamic that you thought would be overcome as a result of a, a crisis of this magnitude, uh, but it in fact has only deepened some of the existing uh, fissures within uh, uh, the EU and amongst its member states. Uh, you know, that we've seen playing out quite visibly and quite publicly for the past several years. Uh, you know, most notably Emmanuel Macron's, uh, you know, vocal desire not to humiliate Russia in the context of this war, but his desire prior to this war for some sort of a reset and, and discussions on uh, on, uh, on European security architecture and his open pouring on, of, of cold water on, on Ukraine's uh, EU uh, ambitions, saying that this is going to take a long time, it's not going to happen tomorrow. Perfectly reasonable thing to say and to propose alternatives so that, you know, Ukraine isn't stuck on the outside looking in, that can overcome this binary accession process in which you're either in or out, looking at some sort of European political or geopolitical community all in favor. The problem is there's not a lot of, of, of goodwill right now, vis-a-vis Macron in particular, and there's a lot of suspicion that basically, uh, you know, French priorities are French priorities and they're not necessarily uh, the same as European priorities, especially when France has not always been, or Germany for that matter, has not always been working through EU structures, uh, you know, to achieve their goals. We saw Germany for the longest time 
say that Nord Stream 2 is exclusively a commercial issue, it's not a geopolitical issue, and it's just a bilateral issue uh, of, of mutual benefit for Germany and Russia, and therefore it's nobody else's business. Well, I'm sorry, but that was just never going to fly, especially after the annexation of Crimea, right? And the same goes, you know, for France's uh, efforts to, 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 alongside Germany to deal with the Ukraine issue in the Normandy format, right, over the past uh, several years. Um, so that, again, you know, the, these are, are efforts that are obviously uh, you know, very useful because it's important that someone, uh, you know, keep uh, momentum behind uh, keeping the, the lines of dialogue open. Um, and if, if some countries are not prepared to do that, then others certainly need to be able to do that. But at the same time, it does prevent the EU from emerging as, as, a, as a significant um, and decisive actor in and of itself. And, and that raises fundamental questions about what kind of organization the EU itself wants to be. I mean, is this an actor? Is it a geopolitical actor? Uh, you know, or is it simply a, a rules-based, values-based, normative community? Uh, th those are two very different futures for the European Union, uh, and they're not 100% mutually exclusive, but there are certainly trade-offs, uh, and, and it's important that those trade-offs be wrestled with quite openly. And to his credit, I think we've seen, uh, you know, the, the, the EU's high representative for foreign and security policy, Josep Borrell, make this case quite explicitly and say, look, either you put your money where your mouth is, or you stop talking about being a geopolitical actor, because it doesn't do anyone any good. Dr. Pekin, this month only, we have witnessed several resignations of European leaders, uh, notably the UK Prime Minister Boris Johnson, uh, followed by Italian PM Mario Draghi and uh, Estonia's PM Kaja Kalas. This is obviously leading to an elevated state of turmoil, instability and uncertainty in the region. Do you anticipate more leaders abandoning the roles due to increased pressure or is there a foreseeable solution in your opinion? Well, I don't think we can make any predictions about who's going to be in power when, but what we already know is, in addition to what you've already said, uh, you've seen uh, Emmanuel Macron uh, lose his majority in the National Assembly, which means that he's going to have to have one eye on domestic politics at all times. Uh, you have in Germany a tripartite coalition uh, with very different uh, understandings of what Germany's Russia policy should be. Uh, you know, the, the, the Greens are much more willing to push for a, a stronger policy vis-a-vis uh, uh, Russia and uh, and the Social Democrats, you know, still uh, wrestling with their history of Ostpolitik and, and seeming to act only when put under significant pressure. And then, of course, you've got the Biden administration, which is expecting to face a significant loss in both houses of Congress uh, come the, the midterm elections this, this November. Uh, so you put all that together and yeah, you've got a, a West that is going to look increasingly uh, challenged, uh, disunited, etc. as the winter settles in and as inflation uh, continues, particularly related to gas prices. Uh, and so, you know, how all of this is going to play out is anybody's guess. And that's probably why Vladimir Putin at this point thinks that time is on his side uh, and, and he can afford to, to wait. Uh, and, um, and this is, you know, certainly something that he's believed for some time as well, even prior to this war, that, you know, history has always vindicated Russia, uh, you know, whether it was in repelling Napoleon or repelling Hitler. And again, now, you know, this is sort of a, a Russia with true uh, you know, European civilizational values that is repelling, you know, the, the morally decadent and corrupt West. And this is just a matter of time before this actually happens. Uh, and, and, you know, Western publics uh, tired of, of, you know, these sanctions and, and, and suffering Ukraine fatigue will vote out their, their liberal internationalist leaders and elect, uh, you know, what Putin would consider to be more sensible interest-based leaders who are interested in, in just sort of normal uh, diplomatic relations with Russia. Um, I think that's a big bet that he's placing. There's absolutely no guarantee that things are going to play out that way because, yes, economic interests are one thing, but ideas also matter. Uh, and the big question is whether or not uh, European 
and 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 American and the American and Canadian publics understand, uh, you know, precisely what's at stake here, uh, and that's very much a matter of contention. Um, the, the message that uh, Western leaders have been trying to communicate is that this is ultimately about Ukrainian democracy uh, more than anything else. Um, and that's a more complicated sell in the rest of the world, right? That might be the message that will resonate the most at home in the West among liberal Western societies. Uh, but that message may not resonate as much uh, in the rest of the world, which certainly cares about, you know, sovereignty and, and development. Uh, but cares a lot less about this sort of ideological battle between democracy and authoritarianism. Uh, so if you want to keep your own publics on board, uh, you know, for, for you know, maintaining the sanctions momentum, that's one thing. And for maintaining you know, support for Ukraine, that's certainly one thing. But the result of this could be that you lose much, much of the rest of the world. Uh, and if that's the case, that could be a net loss for the West over the long term, right? You might reinforce and reinvigorate the transatlantic alliance. Um, but if you lose the hearts and minds of, of much of the global South, which is going to represent greater and greater shares of the global economy over decades to come, uh, then the overall relative position of, of the West is, is likely to, to, to suffer a loss. I'd like to zoom in our discussion to analyze Canada's role particularly. Where do you see Canada's role in addressing the current challenges that Europe is faced with and how? Well, I mean, my own view is that Canada has relatively limited resources uh, and that Canada's role that it played uh, in global politics during the Cold War uh, is different and should be different from uh, the role that it should be playing in the world right now, um, because the world has changed. And I think we have to admit that, right? The, the balance of power and the structure of global international relations during the Cold War um, is different from today in which you have a rising global south, a rising Asia, uh, and yet Canada remains locked into what Kim Nossel calls its North Atlantic anchor, right? NATO is really very much at, at the center. You could say the three ends, NATO, NORAD, and NAFTA, no longer called NAFTA, but still are, account for a, a huge proportion, uh, you know, maybe 90% of Canadian foreign policy in effect. Uh, and, and that's just not necessarily uh, conducive to Canada pursuing what its interests are in the 21st century, especially with the limited resources that it has. And those resources, in relative terms, are more limited as the rest of the world rises, right? Canada is a less significant power in the world today than it was. Uh, you know, it's no longer uh, a, a middle power uh, the way that, that it was uh, in, in the 20th century. And that's something that I think we need to confront. And, that's, and I think that's very important that we wrestle more openly with what our interests are. Uh, and of course, you know, we should absolutely be, be, you know, helping Ukraine. But over the medium to long term, I think we need to be having a more serious discussion about the nature of our interests in Europe uh, and the nature of our interests uh, in, in North American continental defense and the nature of our interests in Asia and whether there are any trade-offs there, and whether being too focused on Europe at the expense of uh, devoting our resources towards continental defense and, and, and Asia uh, is going to pose us some problems down the road. So, you know, at some point, there's going to have to be some sort of grand European accommodation. It may not take the form of a grand accommodation, but nonetheless, there will have to be some sort of modus vivendi uh, between European countries and, and Russia because they share the continent. Uh, you know, certainly this won't happen under Putin, maybe not even under his successor. Uh, but, you know, uh, this is what happens when you have a balance of power that's not unipolar. You have to compromise. This is just the, the reality. Some sort of mutually acceptable place for Russia in Europe's security architecture will have to be found in a way that allows Russia to claim uh, that, you know, it is a respected and respectable great power. 
And that's not on the horizon anytime soon, but that has to happen. And Canada, I think, you know, in terms of its longer term understanding of its interests, should be an external cheerleader of, of European reconciliation, whether it's reconciliation of interests uh, among member states within the European Union or some sort of reconciliation between the European Union and Russia, because some sort of European accommodation uh, is going to create the space necessary for Canada to devote more of its uh, material resources, but also more of its psychological attention uh, towards other issues that are going to become increasingly important. Well, to zoom out our lens a little bit, what do you think are the biggest challenges facing the international community as a whole in rectifying the current situation in Europe? And what is currently being done, in your opinion, to overcome these challenges? And who are the major stakeholders? Well, uh, you know, I, I think that uh, part of the problem with, with the question assumes that there's something called the international community, which we're increasingly seeing that there is not uh, in, in terms of how this conflict is perceived, right? Our perspective in the West is that the Ukraine, uh, the, the war in Ukraine amounts to a fundamental challenge to the rules-based global order. Uh, and, you know, so much of the rest of the world doesn't see it that way. They view this just as a dispute between Russia and the West. That's not really their business. They don't 100% want to pick sides. They disagree with what Russia is doing and are prepared in some cases to condemn what Russia is doing. Um, but that doesn't necessarily mean that they want to cut off all ties with Russia altogether, which they view sometimes to be beneficial. I mean, look at India, which is still buying Russian oil, right? Uh, so you, you got to take all of that into account. Uh, and, you know, I think that Part of what we've been doing in the West has has helped to reinforce that perspective elsewhere, in which we have not uh, made you know the priorities of the global South our own priorities. Right? We we have not responded to their their challenges uh, and their security concerns by saying that these are you know fundamental challenges to the rules-based international order. It's only when it involves Europe that presumably it's the world's problem. Uh, well, the rest of the world, uh, you know, by and large, says no. That's that's not how we're prepared to see things. Um, so I, I think that's unfortunate because that's not a positive agenda. You know, simply wanting to stay on the sidelines and not pick sides is not a positive agenda for global governance. And I think it would be a good thing if the rest of the world, um, you know, did see it as, as their problem. And not, you know, to adopt Western rhetoric concerning the rules-based international order necessarily, but simply because this is a unique historical opportunity for them to play more of a role. Uh, and for them to supersede, you know, the historical legacy of European dominance in the world, as it were. If, if you have Asian countries like China and India working together to solve Europe's problems and to mediate Europe's problems, uh, I think that that's an important signaler of, of, of the role, you know, that these countries are prepared to play in global governance going forward. So I, I hope that, that we can see that happen. Um, the window of opportunity for that to happen has not yet emerged. We're still waiting for, for the Chinese Communist Party Congress to, to re-elect uh, Xi Jinping to a, to a third term as chairman. So that, that has yet to take place. But once that has taken place, perhaps in, in early 2023, there could be some more flexibility on, on China's side. And this depends, of course, on, on, on the course that the war in Ukraine itself takes. Um, but, but I'm hoping that, that as time goes by, that, that you know, a few more avenues for dialogue could possibly be um, explored. Because you know, unlike the, the Donbass war of the past eight years, this is not something that we can allow to fester for eight years. Uh, you know, this war in Ukraine may fester for a year, maybe two, but 
at, at some point, the chickens are going to come home to roost on this front, and the risk of escalation, accidental or deliberate, will be far too high. Uh, so we absolutely cannot believe that that this status quo is worth living with. It's absolutely intolerable for all parties involved, and it's, it's a net loss for everyone. And we should view it as such, irrespective of the the temporary benefits and momentum that you know any given side feels you know it's experiencing right now. Over the long term, this is a net loss for for everyone. To sum this up, what is the future of Russia-European Union relations, in your opinion, if any, given the conflict on Ukraine and others? Will this be primarily based on reluctant relationships due to energy dependency or broader relations? Oh, well, I mean, the, the energy dependency is going to be a feature of the past in the years ahead. It's going to take some time for, for that dependency to be weaned off, but there are plans to make it happen. And, and uh, you know, to a large extent sooner rather than later, but then the remaining percentage, uh, you know, ideally by 2027 is what they're aiming for. Uh, and so, you know, that, that element of dependence will be gone. And that it remains to be seen whether or not that, that will be an important uh, you know, determine, a determining factor of the EU's ability to be a more independent and, and sovereign uh, actor uh, in, in international affairs. Uh, but relations between the EU and, and Russia are going to be played uh, by the, the fundamental fact that, you know, the EU amounts to basically almost all of Europe except for Russia. Uh, and if you're a great power like Russia, um, that's not that's no good. You know, you want to be recognized as an equal European great power, not on the outside looking in. Uh, and so Russia is, you know, opposed naturally to the consolidation of Europe's political and, and economic and security order uh, to a fashion that has largely excluded it. Um, and basically, the EU has tried to set the terms in its relationship with Russia for the past several decades. And it has basically, you know, uh, those terms have basically been for Russia to adopt economic and political reforms to become more and more like the EU, but without ever having the prospect of becoming a member and any of the benefits of, of membership in the EU, basically just to become some sort of client state of, of the EU. Uh, and that was never going to fly, right? Um, and so, uh, you know, as, as long as this structural issue remains and as long as Russia sees its future in Europe, which I think to a large extent it will, irrespective of all of this, you know, Eurasian discourse that you're constantly seeing about Russia's pivot to the East, a lot of that is real. But at the same time, you know, Russians overwhelmingly live in the European part of the country. Their primary security concerns, you know, are vis-a-vis uh, -vis Europe and the West. Uh, and its partnership, Russia's partnership with China, is partly to be able to desecuritize their relations, uh, you know, in, in Central Asia, which is a, uh, and in the Russian Far East, which are, you know, secondary theaters of importance to Russia, uh, so that Russia can devote more of its resources, uh, including military resources, uh, to, uh, you know, its, its front with NATO. Uh, and that's what we saw indeed in, in during the military buildup in the lead up to, to, to this uh, uh, war in Ukraine right now. Uh, so, uh, you know, th th there absolutely will, will be significant challenges in, in reaching any sort of accommodation between the EU and Russia, especially because, you know, the unanimity rule still applies in, in, in EU foreign security policy as well, and different EU members have fundamentally different interests and, and historical memories as it relates to Russia. So it's, it's hard, really, to see a way forward right now. Um, but one can hope that in the future, uh, you know, different parties will have learned certain lessons and will be able to adopt a more realistic approach in which the EU, you know, tries to find a place for Russia and Europe and is more realistic about what it can expect in terms of Russia's ability to transform itself. And Russia is also a little bit more realistic about what some of the costs uh, and, and, uh, are, uh, you know, of, of, of pursuing friendly relations with the West, because the West believes that friendly relations are predicated on political transformation, whereas Russia believes that friendly relations are, are predicated on having shared interests, and those are not necessarily the, the same thing. 
Um, and even under a future leader, that that uh, that dilemma is is going to remain uh, in, in Russia-West relations. Dr. Pekin, um, recent news have been circulating around uh, regarding Finland and Sweden finalizing accession talks to NATO. While while ratification is the way to go for membership for both nations, which might also take several years, do you envision that this will ever be official? Well, for sure. I mean, it looks like it's actually moving quite quickly. Um, so I, I don't see any reason why it shouldn't proceed. Uh, I mean, I, I'm not, uh, you know, privy to any internal discussions uh, in terms of predictions of how long this is going to take. But uh, I think the assumption is that the big hurdles have been overcome, and it looks like. Uh, you know, the two countries are, are going to join. That doesn't mean that there aren't going to be continuing disagreements among NATO's members. But um, uh, the, these two countries clearly have a great deal to offer the alliance. And so I expect that they will join. I see. Um, to sum it up, um, this is the last question. Is there a particular aspect in your research that you find to be um, specifically compelling or surprising? And what are some implications for future research? Uh, well, I mean, in terms of uh, research concerning uh, how we could have predicted the war and how the war would go, um, I think that, uh, you know, by, by and large, I, I and many others were able to predict that this war would happen. Um, that, that's something that, that I and, and others got right. I know that a lot of people, uh, you know, including in Ukraine and in Russia, got that wrong. They just thought that it was completely implausible that Russia would invade uh, you know, uh, uh, Ukraine, they thought that it was either suicide or they thought that, that uh, you know, Ukraine is a fraternal country and there's no way this is ever going to happen. Or the Ukrainians thought, you know, the Russians just have not built up enough forces uh, around our, our, our borders to, to, you know, launch a realistic assault. Turns out they were right, I guess. Uh, but, uh, uh, you know, by and large, uh, it seemed very logical to me that Russia would launch this attack because Russia has been saying for the longest time, uh, we want X, Y, and Z from the West in terms of security guarantees, in terms of you know what we want the shape of the European security architecture to look like. Um, and if you can't get what you want at the negotiating table, then you're going to try to get what you want on the military battlefield. That's just uh, the logical conclusion. So I, I absolutely thought that that this war was going to happen if we were not prepared to negotiate seriously. And indeed, you know, it's entirely possible that Putin had already made up his mind that he was going to attack, uh, you know, in, in, in the lead up to, to these negotiations on so-called security guarantees. Um, you know, but earlier in the process, uh, earlier over the course of the past several decades, it was also uh, gradually apparent to the Russian political elite that, you know, the West was going to set the terms of the relations uh, between Russia and the West, uh, and that, you know, they were prepared to discuss on certain, uh, you know, uh, secondary issues, but on the core principles underpinning the European security architecture, uh, you know, such as Ukraine's so-called right to choose to join Western military institutions. Uh, you know, that that was uh, always a red line for the West. And, and indeed, you know, it was. And, and, you know, we made it very clear during these talks in, in late 2021 and early 2022 that it was a red line uh, and that we're prepared to talk about strategic stability, but we're not prepared to talk about core political principles. Well, Russia communicated pretty clearly that what it was interested in was core political principles. Uh, and, you know, as long as there's no fundamental agreement on those principles, there's always going to be instability in the European security architecture or the European security uh, 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 in a regional security subsystem. Uh, that's always going to be there. And we need to be prepared for that. Um, you know, if we if we believe that defending Ukraine's right to join Western institutions um, is, you know, a principle that we're not prepared to compromise on, then that's fine. Um, but there will be costs and the cost will be a very dangerous, uh, unpredictable, 
uh, and 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 costly uh, uh, relationship with Russia involving a permanent security dilemma and confrontation, uh, possibly worsening uh, in in uh, Europe's east. And that's not uh, that's not a cost that we should be taking lightly at all. In terms of things that we got wrong, I mean, uh, the, the outcome of the war is something that we got wrong. I think that the general consensus was that if Russia was going to invade Ukraine, that they were going to take the country, uh, you know, in, in a matter of maybe not the whole country, but, you know, certainly whatever they wanted to take, possibly all of the territory east of the Dnieper within just a few days. And the assumption was that, uh, you know, the Ukrainian population would be largely passive. And that was an assumption that was based to a significant extent. Uh, you know, in in how the Euromaidan revolution played out in 2014, in which, uh, you know, this was a big political event in, in Kiev, but in many cities in, in eastern and southern Ukraine, uh, there was a much more passive uh, approach to, to, to that political movement back in 2014. Um, but Russia's outright invasion has, has clearly changed the, the calculus here and has made it very difficult, uh, you know, as, as even Karatsev has, has, has said. Uh, you know, that, um, uh, that, that you know, uh, the average uh, Russophone Ukrainian could just live his life, irrespective of what his passport said, as feeling both Ukrainian and Russian, part of the Russian cultural orbit, um, and, you know, content in some sort of post-Soviet identity that could bring Russians and Ukrainians together, uh, irrespective of the borders that have been erected, uh, you know, since, since 1991 uh, and, and the aftermath of the collapse of the Soviet Union. Um, but that, that's no longer the case today. Uh, and and then it's un- some would say that it's, that it's unfortunate that that's no longer the case because it's, uh, it, it's always wonderful to be able to have multiple identities, to be able to have peaceful relations uh, you know, between countries where, where post-colonial borders have, have been erected. Um, and uh, you know, now basically you, you have to pick a side. Um, at the other end, uh, on the other hand, this does sort of accelerate a process that was already underway, which is the continued dissolution of the Soviet Union, which should be viewed as, as a process rather than an event. Uh, and so if you're a supporter, for example, of Ukrainian nationalism or indeed of Russian nationalism, uh, uh, Russian nationalism perhaps of the ethnic variety rather than the imperial variety, um, then you know this war represents uh, a certain opportunity. Uh, you know, for for your political cause, right? So different different strokes for different folks on on that front, uh, but but that's definitely something that that, that we got wrong is is um, or that many people got wrong is how this uh, this war would actually uh, play out. Um, that remains to be seen, of course. You know how it will continue to play out, and and whether or not uh, you know Russia is going to be able you know basically to uh, to to break uh, you know the resolve of, of Ukrainian soldiers and and uh, you know the Ukrainian political elite, and at some point uh, you know realize not just its military objectives uh, but also its political objectives in Ukraine, short of an occupation of, of Kiev, nonetheless forcing through some sort of regime change in, in, in Kiev. That's probably still the goal. And Sergei Lavrov, um, Russia's foreign minister, appeared to, to make it clear recently that that does indeed remain uh, Russia's goal. Um, so a lot of wild cards out there, and therefore I don't think we should take the security situation for, for granted. Because um, the, longer, the longer this drags on, um, without the expectations of any of the parties, whether it's Russia, the West, or, or Ukraine being realized, and without victory being clearly defined, uh, the, the more risk that there actually is that um, uh, you know that you're going to run into to problems when when circles of the Venn diagram no longer uh, uh, you know uh, intersect for for for, for uh, basically if they if they don't intersect for for a certain amount of time, uh, eventually tensions are going to boil over and, and contradictions are going to boil. Over.
Dr. Zachary Pakin, Research Fellow at the Institute for Peace and Diplomacy, expert on European and Canadian foreign policy, researcher at the Center for European Policy Studies, and senior visiting fellow at the Global Policy Institute. I want to thank you very much for your time and for a very thought-triggering and provoking discussion. Uh, your insights and remarks have been absolutely uh, informative and uh, inspirational. Uh, we wish you all the best and hope to have you again in the near future for sure. Thanks so much, Adi. Have a great one.